0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Travel times on Trendlebed Tales Podcast. Once again, we are going to look at a new and different uh, hobby or place that you can visit, and today we're going to be talking about archaeology. Now, before we get into that, we have just a little bit of housekeeping. And I want to remind everybody: if you haven't listened to it yet, you may want to catch the uh, July podcast that I did uh, for what the update was in Lorengel's Wilder fandom this month, because there was just a lot of stuff going on. And as always, if you have a question for this show, or just want to listen to it uh, by phone instead of streaming it, you can call while we're live at seven one four two four two five two five three. That's seven one four two four two five two five three. Or toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. That's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And if you ever want to listen to an episode later, you can do that either by streaming on the Blog Talk Radio website or or you can download it from iTunes for free and take it with you. And I, oh, and I wanted to let everybody know that the chat room is open. And so if anybody wants to talk that way instead, you sure can. And I think that is about it for housekeeping. <laughs> so that brings us back to our guest today. And I would like to welcome to the show uh, Lynn Alex, who I had the great pleasure of taking a class from for my teacher recertification last summer, and I just learned all about archaeology, and I'm very excited that uh, you can come on the show today, Lynn, and tell everybody else about it.
0: Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: So, So do you want to tell them a little bit about your background? Sure.
0: Um, I uh, actually just retired from my current position just a couple of weeks ago, but for over the last 10 years I have been um, Director of Education and Outreach at the University of Iowa, Office of the State Archaeologist. Um, I've been doing research, uh, archaeological research in the Midwest oh gosh, for about 30 years or more. Uh, did some work out on the plains. Um, I was out in South Dakota and um, I taught there at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City for a number of years. And um, before that, uh, I guess I was in Iowa for a brief period and worked for the Office of the State Archaeologist. Um, I've been an adjunct instructor at the University of Iowa and also at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, my own uh, graduate uh, school uh, was the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and um, throughout my career, I've been able to do, do research not only in North America, um, but also in Western Europe. Uh, I did a number of projects in Scotland, uh, in the uh, northern uh, Scottish Isles, uh, the Shetland and the Orkney Islands. That was many years ago, but there were several projects that I was part of there. And um, then I had the opportunity again a number of years ago to work on a project project in the far north um, in excuse me, in northern Norway, um, above the Arctic Circle, about as far north, certainly as far north as I had ever been, and and as far north as many Norwegians had actually been as well. So um, I've had a wonderful career in archaeology, and even though I've retired from my current position, um, I'm still an archaeologist, and I'm hoping to um, complete some research and am working right now on a book with two colleagues um, that will talk about archaeological sites to visit in Iowa. So um, that will fit in with um, what you're doing with this program as well, because it will give people some idea of where they might go in in Iowa um, to at least see where archaeological sites exist and learn a little bit more about what was found at those sites.
1: Well, that's pretty exciting. I didn't even know you were doing a book on it. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So you've had a really uh, exciting career, it sounds like, in archaeology.
0: I have. I've never regretted it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it. As you can imagine, it's always something new. Like any job, there are tedious aspects to it, but um, it's been a wonderful career.
1: So we're um, kind of looking at it from the standpoint of whether our listeners could get involved or not. So can anybody volunteer for an archaeological dig, or do you have to get special training? Uh, no
0: there are there are lots of volunteer opportunities and um there you know if if you're if you're in the united states um most uh states have uh, either a historical society or an archaeological society um sometimes universities offer opportunities for volunteers or for people to even take classes, but if you're in a specific state, I would uh, recommend that you see if there is an archaeological society. Um, For instance, in Iowa, we have the Iowa Archaeological Society, and almost all of the opportunities that we have offered from the University of Iowa's Office of the State Archaeologist have been coordinated with the Archaeological Society itself. Um, even though, for instance, on our website we would list any volunteer opportunities coming up, um, we always have worked with the Archaeological Society to make those projects happen, and they frequently provide funding for them. So I would recommend that depending on where people are, if they're in Iowa. Um, They, you know, get information about the Iowa Archaeological Society. Um, You could also go to your office of the state archaeologist in Iowa. That's at the University of Iowa. Um, If you're looking farther afield, One of the things that would be a good source for folks would be the Archaeological Institute of America. And they actually publish now an online fieldwork opportunities bulletin. So if you are online, you could just Google Archaeological Institute of America fieldwork, and their fieldwork bulletin page would pop up, and you would see there that there are different types of programs available. One is a field school, and that would probably be for academic credit, but there's also a volunteer box that you can log into, and I'm looking at the map on their page now, and they're showing field work opportunities for volunteers and for uh, credit all across the world, Uh, many of them in North, Central, and even South America. There are a lot of them in Europe. Um, I see one in um, uh, what Thank you uh very likely uh excuse me uh, Israel uh uh Asia uh opportunities so that would be a place if you're really looking to maybe go farther afield than North America that you would want to look at but there's also a lot of uh opportunities volunteer opportunities in the United States um, another one would be the the Forest Service the US Forest Service again if you're looking in the United States and they have a program called Passport in Time And Passport in Time is basically a volunteer program where people have the opportunity to take part in different projects. Many of them are archaeological projects. And so those are two national and even international possibilities. Uh, Another one which folks might be aware of, another national, international program, is called Earthwatch. And Earthwatch has... Opportunities both in archaeology and in paleontology. Um, those, are I would say, are less. They are volunteer, but typically you pay for the, for the privilege of of going on those projects. But they have lots of different types of projects all over the world, and that might be something that that people would like to look into. Um, I should also say that for. Folks who are, uh, I think, 52 or older in the retirement sort of mode, um, the Rhodes Scholar, and that's R O A D S Scholar program, um, which used to be called Elder Hostel, also often has volunteer opportunities, uh, field work, and classes in archaeology for people who want to um, go somewhere really interesting and learn more about the archaeology of, of an area. But of course, you have have to fit in with, with their um, requirements for, for the age bracket for that program. But those are those are some sort of general ideas that can get folks started.
1: But uh, they don't, if, if you're sitting here and thinking it would be fun, but you really haven't done anything like this before, you right. don't have to go through anything usually. You're just going to reach out and, and uh, you'd sort of be vol- trained in situation not going usually. Is that right? I
0: would, well, I would say, yes, it's situational. And, again, depending on the project, um, for instance, when we've done projects in Iowa, because you, just, you can go out and somebody could say, this is the part of the archaeological site that we want to know more about, and so we would like you to be working in this particular uh, excavation area or excavation unit. Um, you do need some training for that. You can't just go out and begin even digging, and digging is just one aspect of doing an archaeological project. Um, So most projects have some sort of uh, I'll call it on the volunteer job training. And certainly when we've done our projects in Iowa uh, we've always allowed for some initial training of our volunteers and we also usually try to pair them up with experienced people. And I would say that most projects would would have some sort of training involved because you just can't, as I said, go out and begin digging. There's a lot more, even to the process of digging, than somebody handing you a shovel or somebody handing you a trowel, a hand tool, and say, just dig here. Archaeologists dig very carefully. Uh, They dig uh, in a a horizontal plane. We just don't dig in vertically. We're trying to... uh, keep track of where things are are coming up Uh, in relation to other items in the ground. And so you want to see how they relate on a flat surface to one another. And then ultimately, as you go down into an excavation, uh, you want to see how things are related vertically relative to one another, because that gives you an idea of things that are older in a site as opposed to younger. So even the process, the physical process of digging, takes some training in archaeology. And then you want to be... Learning how you record all that information because unless you record it, you might as well not have dug the site you've just destroyed a site and you haven't recorded the information that you've found so yes, somebody could go and not have any prior experience or prior training, but they will almost certainly or should be certainly given on the on the on the job training, so
1: to speak um. Okay, you gave a lot of great resources where people could find a dig if they were just looking for a dig in general. But if you mm-hmm. hear about a particular dig, what are your, how good are your chances to get on one that you're interested in? Are there lots of people volunteering, or is there usually space for anyone who wants to help?
0: Well, I would say, first of all, there. Even though I gave some good resources, um, there aren't always a lot of opportunities in in one particular area for volunteers. For instance, right now in Iowa, um, I only know of one project that is coming up in the near future where volunteers might take we had a project earlier this summer um, that we we had somewhat open uh, to some supervised volunteering on a weekend but it's 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 not that common that you find an archaeological project where volunteers can come and that's partly because most archaeology that is conducted is conducted either as a result of some um, compliance work that's being done and I'll give you an example of of that, if a highway is um, being constructed in an area or there is some additional expansion of a highway, we have some legislation, some federal legislation that says that the project has to be cleared of significant archaeological resources in the line of the project before the construction can occur, and that is all done by professional archaeologists working under some uh, very very important federal guidelines on how that project be conducted. Most of those projects would have paid professional archaeologists working on them, and they would not have volunteers. In some cases, volunteers would not be even allowed to work on those projects. And most of the archaeology that's done in the United States is that kind of archaeology. There are projects that are pure research projects, and those can be sponsored by universities. They could be sponsored by historical societies or offices of state archaeologists. Um, Some of those projects might allow volunteers. Many of them would not. And so um, you have to kind of hunt and pack for a project that would allow a volunteer. So you might be interested, for instance, in a particular site. Let's say there was some archaeology that was going to be conducted at the Herbert Hoover uh, birthplace location or blacksmith shop, but that would not mean that volunteers would be allowed on that project.
1: Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know because it's good to have your expectations about what you're going to be able to allow to do in the right place before you you know, start a new thing. Like That's that. right, and
0: and and if people are looking to travel someplace, um, then they want to do that research in advance um, to let them know if they're going to be able to take part in a project. There are quite a few projects on the East Coast connected with famous sites, um, things like Montpelier, um, uh, Madison's birthplace, for instance, in Virginia, or Monticello, Jefferson's birthplace, or Williams. Or Jamestown, some of those colonial sites, um many of those have had volunteer opportunities associated with them, but you know you you get away from an area where there's a lot of interest in early colonial history and a lot of colonial archaeology, and it may be a little bit more difficult to find something that would allow you to be a volunteer.
1: Uh, and Jamestown especially has just done a great job with their little videos showing people what's going on with the digs there. I just, I, I, always give them as an example of what a museum can do with YouTube. It's just really well done. It is. They've um, got some, as
0: you say, some wonderful videos. Absolutely.
1: So, um, it sounds like you can volunteer for uh, places, different places to go volunteer. Mm-hmm. What kind of things would a volunteer do on a dig usually? You said that you know there's special ways for like digging and stuff. So, so do you get to what kind of things on projects where volunteers are allowed? Do they usually get to do?
0: Okay, well, again, it would vary quite a bit um, depending on the project. But let's say you're a volunteer and you're actually involved in the field work. And the field work could be going out and looking for archaeological sites in an area, or it might be documenting uh, sites that have been found but are not necessarily being dug. Um, And both of those sorts of activities would involve um, maybe walking across the surface of an area and looking for, signs that people lived there in the past so you might be looking for artifacts on the surface. If you could uh, see the surface, let's say you're walking across a plowed field or you might be walking along a creek looking for artifacts that might have eroded or might have been brought up by farming activities. Uh, You might be looking for uh, the disturbance of the ground. Let's say you saw a depression in the ground or you saw an earthen mound on the surface or you saw uh, a foundation. Of a former structure, say a wall that had once been there, the ruins of a building, Um, that would be, um, you would be learning how to identify those signs that tell us that an archaeological site was present. And then you might be doing some recording. You might be taking some notes on what you had discovered, you might be working with topographic maps and learning how to record uh, that location on a topographic map, or of course now archaeologists use um, GPS, and so you might have a GPS instrument with you, and you would be recording the coordinates of the archaeological site on a GPS. Um, If you were doing actual excavation, let's say you were on an archaeological site that was being excavated, uh, and you were doing part of the actual digging Uh, You would very likely be assigned a portion of the site that was being opened up. And as I said earlier, we might like to have you be working with people who had experience who could help you. You would be given some digging tools, and it might be at the beginning you'd have to bust sod. Let's say you were right there at the beginning of a project. Um, You would uh, be given your location. You might help string out the excavation unit, uh, the the square on a grid uh, that you would be working in, and so you would be pounding in wooden stakes at the corners of that grid square, and you would be putting little uh, nails in the top of those stakes, and you would be putting a string around around the square. Um, Then you would probably take some measurements of the surface. We'd want to see what the surface elevation was uh, of the ground. Then you would bust the sod. You'd uh, very carefully be peeling off the sod. If it was a site that had sod on it, if it was a site that had corn stalks growing out of it, you would carefully uh, remove that surface layer. And um, then depending on how deep each of the levels were that you would be removing, you would then at that point either take a very uh sharp uh, snub nose shovel and very carefully skim off the soil uh staying within the um the depth measurements of your your layer. Or you might get down on your hands and knees with a hand trowel, a mason's trowel that you would be taught how to keep nice and sharp. And you would very carefully begin to peel back the soil layers. And as you begin to find things and it might be items, artifacts, or it could be changes in the soil itself. Maybe all of a sudden you would start to see a different colored stain in the soil. You would very carefully again on a horizontal plane uh, peel back the soil around those items, and you would then probably begin to map them. You'd you take photographs, uh, you'd take measurements, both the uh, depth of those items and also map them within the excavation unit. You would have uh, graph paper to make some maps and take some measurements. You'd be assigned a notebook and you'd be um, instructed on how to take very careful notes of what you were seeing and what you were finding. Um, Very likely there would be some sort of a screening device at the site, um, a box screen with some fine um, mesh, uh, uh, maybe like a window screen in the bottom of that box screen, and um, sometimes those are put up on two legs, sometimes they're on a tripod, and as you're digging the soil from your unit, you would be screening that soil through that uh, shaker screen, uh, and that way you would recover much smaller materials that you normally wouldn't see as you're digging with your hands. Um, You also might take soil samples from your unit, and those soil samples might be put through a, uh, a much finer uh, device, a flotation device um, that uh, we uh, float the soil through uh, some water and the very light materials, say you have fish scales or tiny seeds that you've found, those materials will float to the top and they can be screened off through some very, very fine mesh and that's how we often recover microscopic sized materials from the site. Uh, You might also be working in the lab. Uh, Very often we try to get volunteers to do some of the lab work. And so in that case, you would be sitting down and you would be sorting through the materials that were found at the site. You might be washing up some of the artifacts. You might be doing some labeling because all of those artifacts has to get a catalog number that tells us where on the site it was found and what site it belonged to. That's something that very often volunteers are asked to do. Uh, Depending on the project, you might be doing some uh, artifact reconstruction. Maybe you would be sitting down and you would be given a lot of pottery shirts or pieces of pottery that came from the site, and you would be asked to try to piece those back together, just like you're working a jigsaw puzzle, uh, to try to see if we could come up with uh, uh, parts of the vessels or parts of the pots that those uh, sherds represent. Um, So those would be the kinds of things, um, both survey, uh, both archaeological field work, the digging, um, lab work. Uh, Maybe you would be asked to write up your field notes, type up your field notes, or enter that information in a database if we had access to um, the computer records at that time. Those are all the kinds of things that that a volunteer um, could be doing. You would be working with um, hand tools, as I said, like uh, the mason's trowel, but also paint brushes and fine uh, picks, like dental picks and uh, that sort of thing. uh, If you were working with really delicate materials, Uh, mapping is really important. So, mapping and photographing would be part of the field work um, and also part of the lab work as well.
1: Okay. uh, I'm going to, we actually had two calls come in. Okay. And one of uh-huh. them, I I think, uh, had, the, one of them hung up again. I think they thought we weren't going to get to them. So if you want to <laughs> call back in now, yeah, you can. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to go to the other one and just check in quick. Uh, she doesn't, or whoever it is, area code 712 isn't saying specifically. They have a question, but I just want to check and double check. I'll make sure. So before we All go right. on. Okay, so uh, area code 712, you should be coming on the air. Uh, hello, did you want to actually have a question or a comment, or were you just listening? It's okay to say you're just listening. Or not. Okay. Well, I guess they didn't want to say
0: anything. Well, that's today. Right. It, probably, it probably went on too long, so I'll try to make brief Oh, answers. no, no. That's, <laughs> that's um,
1: that's all right. Okay, so I've put them back on hold. And if the other gentleman uh, calls back in, I'm assuming it's a gentleman. He said it, it, the call name came up as Uncle Bill. Uh, and I don't have an Uncle Bill, but I assume it was a man. Uh, we'll put you through. So sorry about that. But okay, but in the meantime, uh, we have about five minutes left. So why don't we just check in quick? And mm-hmm. um, I know we wanted to mention. Well, well, the the big question about normal archaeology that I have left, I don't think we answered it, uh if you're there digging uh, a hole, mm-hmm. assuming that that is what you're doing in this, this project, do you fill them in again, or do you leave them open, or what do you do with, after you get done with the dig? Yeah,
0: no, typically they're filled back in. Um, and certainly if you're on private property um, or property that uh, is supposed to go back to the way it looked previously, you definitely will fill them in. Very rarely, and let's say you've got road construction and um, the road is going to come through after you're finished with the excavation and it's going to be for, further disturbed, it may be that those holes would not have to be filled in. but But very typically, everything would be filled in after the excavation was over.
1: Okay, and we did want to mention, too, because by its nature, archaeology tends to be destructive when you do the actual digging. You only get Mm -hmm. one bite of the apple. Uh, right. There have been developing other kinds of less invasive methods. So why don't we just talk about those just a little bit? With the time
0: yes, and, 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 and they're they're quite exciting because not only are they less invasive, but you can also often get quite a bit of information in a relatively short time. And so some of those techniques, and we often refer to them as geophysical techniques, sometimes they're called remote sensing techniques. But very simply, they allow you, with varying degrees of, Uh, clarity um, to get an idea of what might be below the ground before you ever sink a shovel or a trowel into the ground. And so depending on the materials that might Lie beneath the ground. There are different techniques like ground penetrating radar, um, magnetic survey, electrical resistivity survey that will detect different types of material below the ground, and so. If you have something that is beneath the ground that can be detected with one of those techniques, you often are able to map out um, an idea of something like a house floor or perhaps a storage pit or a midden, uh, a garbage area below the ground. without really even excavating. And we had a good example of that in Iowa the last few years, a little village site up in northwest Iowa, where we were able to detect the presence of 24 900-year-old houses um, by doing some magnetic survey of that village without doing any additional excavation at that site. Um, And that happened within the course of about four or five days. To dig a site of that magnitude would take my lifetime. So obviously we don't have individual items, but we have a very good idea of the nature of the site using that kind of a technique.
1: Well, it really is exciting all the different ways that uh, archaeology is going, and I think um, I think we oh we don't really think of archaeology too often here in Iowa, but that certainly doesn't mean that there aren't some exciting things that you. Uh, that, that archaeologists have found, what are some of the kinds of things that you find in Iowa?
0: um Well, I should say that we have right now over twenty six thousand recorded archaeological sites in the state, and those are the ones we have state records on. We have everything in Iowa from um clues to the very first American Indian people who lived here thirteen thousand years ago, right up to the discoveries. Um, that go along with the arrival of Euro-Americans to the state and very famous people. And I'll bring up um, Herbert Hoover and the um, location of the blacksmith shop in the birthplace. Uh, there's been excavation conducted at the birthplace in the blacksmith shop area um, at, the, at the National Historic Site. And that um, archaeology has shown that, yes, there is evidence of the blacksmith shop. It's given us a better idea of where that shop was and the kinds of things that were in it. And just within the last few years, we did some ground penetrating radar area and discovered that there's probably very little of the original birthplace cottage left at the site. So those techniques can sometimes tell us what's not Still surviving in the ground as well as what's still there, so um iowa has has all of um, all of human history uh present in the archaeology that's here
1: well uh we are sadly out of time, but i I told you thirty minutes wouldn't seem very long <laughs> but uh, but uh we're I'm very glad that you came on the show. I think that was really interesting to learn about archaeology, and I really hope that you let us know when the uh, book comes out and we'll be sure to spread the word.
0: Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you to everybody who was listening today and I hope that I will catch you next time on Travel Times here at Trendle Bed (laughs) Tale.